The scripture reading for tonight's sermon is in Genesis 2, Genesis 2:15 2, through 3:7. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, "You may surely eat of every tree of the garden." But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all, the li- to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Good evening. Good to be here with you all. We uh, work our way through, I think um, we are halfway through our Go Make Disciples series here. So um, we've done four, I think we have four more. We're going to cover manhood, womanhood, work, and then missions. And then we'll move on from there. So thanks everybody for your just engagement with our series. And I uh, look forward to Discussing these topics in the life of the church, biblical manhood and womanhood are certainly big topics, and there are definitely topics that um, we can uh, really always use sharpening on, right, in terms of our culture that we live in, um, the questions that we have about um, manhood and womanhood are always being challenged, really. So sharpening uh, biblical thinking on that is, I think, something that hopefully we can offer to the church and that uh, we would benefit from. So let me pray and we will get to work. 
Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word, and thank you that you are the God of your word. We thank you, Lord God, that you have spoken and you have done so authoritatively. Lord, we thank you that we have an authoritative word here. Lord, this is true for all times and all places, for all peoples, for all cultures, Lord, we have something that is a foundation, not for just one time and place, but for all times and all places. And we thank you, Lord God, that you don't shift. You're not one way today and another way tomorrow. What you have said is what you have spoken, and that is true yesterday and today and forevermore. So therefore, Lord God, if we built our house upon this foundation yesterday, Lord, we can rest in it and stand sure in it today, and we can be confident of it tomorrow as well. And we praise you for that, Lord God. We praise you that you are not a shifting God. Lord God, we thank you that you are the creator, and I pray that you would give your church and your people eyes to to see more clearly, Lord God, what you have created, what you have put into place, and how this reveals your character and how it calls us to worship you. So please outfit us, Lord, with these things. Help us to worship the living God, the creator God. And Lord, we are your creatures. We are not the creators. We are not the ones who don't need slumber or sleep. We need sleep. Lord, you are the one who is limitless. You are measureless in your love and you are measureless in your ability. Lord, we are not. We are finite. Lord, we have limitations We are needy in many different ways. Lord, we get tired and we grow weary. Even the strongest of us, Lord, will grow tired and weary. They will need sleep. We are your creatures, Lord. So help us, Father, to hear what you have to say about these things. And we pray, Father, that you would inform us and encourage us and build our houses upon this rock ever more so. So please, Lord, direct our steps and speak to us tonight and, um, and sharpen your people, sharpen our collective thinking. In Jesus' name we pray all of these things. Amen. So I remember a time when I was a boy, probably about 10 years old, <clears throat> and I was thinking to myself how thankful I was to be a boy and not a girl. And um, I know maybe that sounds perhaps sexist, but it's not. I was 10, by the way. I had one sibling, a sister, who was three years older than me at the time. Actually, she's still three years older than me. I remember, actually, that this conjures up another memory of me lying in my bed when I was just a youngster. And I thought, in three years... I'll be just as old as my sister. And finally, I won't have to be bossed around anymore. <laughs> and, then, and then, of course, it hit me that, wait, in three years, she'll, she'll be three years older, too. So. She's still three years older. Um, but she was, back then, still true, three years older than me. And so she was basically my main point of comparison as I tried to figure out what a man or what a boy is and what a girl is, right? My childhood was filled with sports, building tree forts, more sports, 
building bike jumps, climbing trees, flipping bikes, playing capture the flag at night, video games such as Mike Tyson's Punch-Out, catching frogs, shooting BB guns, playing pranks on people, just to name a few things. By comparison, my sister, she never went outside. Like, if you caught her, like, going out to catch the, or get the mail or something, it was like, what are you doing here? This is not your, your habitat, right? Um, She never went outside. She read books, and she watched TV programs. She didn't play sports, and she wasn't interested in video games at all. It actually took her an hour to get ready for school. Now, I didn't really like school much at all, so I thought an hour to get ready for something that you didn't even like in the first place just seemed like punishment. So it took her an hour to get ready for school. Most girls that I observed were somewhat similar to this, to my sister. So I concluded, praise God, that I am a boy. (laughs) Because to be a girl seemed to me at the time like the death sentence of terminal boredom. Now there's a few things that I can say about this experience. And I just wanted to remind you, I was 10 at the time, and that was the way a 10-year-old boy thought about life, right? Um, There's a few things I can say about this experience. First, I can say that from my earliest memories, right, of just existing, I was attempting to come to grips with my gender. And this question was really relevant to me. What does it mean to be a boy? What does it mean to be a girl? These are things you just wrestle with. And I've not really stopped trying to come to grips with these questions. Of course, I'm not really asking what does it mean to be a boy, but really still asking what does it mean to be a man? And what does it mean to be a woman as I think about that pastorally and for the women in my life? And the second thing that we can take away from this, from this experience, is that there needs to be a difference between cultural preferences and biblical mandates. We need to carefully and think carefully um, that we don't conclude something like this. Men like to play sports, so sports are manly, right? Men like to shoot guns, so masculinity means that you shoot things and you eat them and you eat it. And I think that the reason why we have to be careful not to make such conclusions is because While there's generalities, some men do like to play sports, maybe a lot of them, but some don't. Some men do like to shoot things, some don't. They're not into that, right? So we have to be careful not to assign masculine and feminine labels because we don't want, say, a man to feel like they are not meeting God's ideal for manhood if they are not interested in things like shooting things and blowing stuff up. So those are two things maybe I can glean from that. And we'll kind of circle back to this a little bit more throughout the sermon. But let me make some preliminary comments on manhood and womanhood in general, from Genesis 2 and elsewhere in the Bible. First of all, manhood and womanhood in their distinct roles is a calling that is given to us by God. And it is not the result of the fall. It's not the result of sin. 
God assigned gender roles prior to the fall. If you look at Genesis 2:15 through 3:7, that section that we read there, it was clearly before the fall that God kind of delineated between male and female and roles that accounted to both. And the way that we look at it at our church, which we think the Bible teaches, is that men are equal and significant, but they're distinct in roles. We believe this is called complementarianism, if you are familiar with that term. We would consider ourselves complementarian in the sense that women are, men and women are equal before God in significance as image bearers of God. But we are distinct in roles, and therefore men have certain roles that they are called to play that women are not called to play, and vice versa. And in that, there's it's complementary, the two genders. The opposite of this view would be the egalitarian view, which essentially says no men and women are equal in every possible way. Therefore, women can be leaders in every single function that men are called to be leaders. And we don't think there's, like, for instance, a pastor. We will not have a pastor, a female pastor at GCF, because we believe this is an office that males are uh, supposed to fill. And this isn't because we think that women are unable or they aren't uh, perhaps smart enough to do something like this. We just believe that this is what Scripture teaches that men are to be, play, play the role of pastors and fill that particular leadership office. So that's the difference between complementarianism and egalitarianism. We believe that men and women are equal in their essence, but they are distinct in their roles. And that these roles are not the results of the consequence of sin, but they are wisely woven into the fabric of creation. And we'll flesh that out a little bit more, too. A second thing I can say, just by way of introduction, is that God creates with intention and purpose. Right? And this includes male and female. And by it, he displays his love, his excellence, and his glory. So in male manhood and in female fe womanhood, God displays his character through that. He puts on display his wisdom, his love, his excellence, and his glory by these creations. 1 Chronicles 16, 25, and 26. For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. And he is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Isn't that interesting? God is known by his creation. He made the heavens. Notice the way creation is referenced as a revelation of the one true God. We know God is God because he made the heavens. He's made something. He's done something in creation. God has created roles and boundaries for all of his creation, you see. Right? He's given the sun for day. He's given the moon for night. He's given dry land for the earth and waters for the sea. He's given fruits and plants to produce fruit according to their kinds. And he's made male and he's made female. 
These are rooted in creation and it displays the purpose and the wisdom and the might and the power and the excellence and the glory of God. A third thing that we can say is that manhood and womanhood is actually the very first thing that Satan attacks and seeks to destroy. You notice that in Genesis 2 and 3? Notice that Satan goes after Eve first. When God goes to Adam first. God goes to Adam. Satan goes to Eve. And the reason why this is important and the reason why this is significant is because we see that Satan is trying to attack God. He hates God. He wants to destroy God. We know from Genesis 3.1 that he is the most crafty being. So therefore, we can actually, as much as we hate the devil, we can learn something from him and that he is very crafty. And therefore, he does things with craft. He doesn't just do things willy-nilly. He's... he's, he's uh, smart about why he does what he does. And when he goes to Eve instead of Adam, he's actually intending to turn the creation upside down. And by so doing, he sees this is the best way to attack the character of God. How do you attack the character of God? Well, I know. We'll force his creative purposes into a Functioning in a way that's antithetical to how he has designed it. God has put men in charge. And Satan is trying to force creation to function with women in charge. Reverse the order. And not only is this a reversal of creation, this is an attack on the character of God. And I think one of the things that we can learn from Satan and his craftiness is that maleness, masculinity, and femininity is very much linked to the character of God and his revelation of God. So when we see Satan, who hates the glory of God, and when we see him attack masculinity and, and femininity, when he attacks gender roles first, he actually does that first. Before he does anything else, he actually tampers with gender. Do you see that? The very first thing that he does is he goes to the woman. And you don't really see that. It doesn't seem obvious right off the bat that he's doing that, but that's the, that's the fact of it. The very first attack that he makes on God is actually on gender. Okay, a fourth thing that we can say is that Paul the Apostle calls men to act like men. This is in 1 Corinthians 16. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. You see, the reason why this is significant is because it is possible, according to the mind of Paul, for men to act like men. That means that there is a way for men to act like men, as opposed to acting like animals or boys or women, right? So there's something that he has in mind in terms of acting a certain way that is becoming of or in line with masculinity, okay? And that's apart from, say, femininity or childhood. That's the fourth thing that we can say by way of introduction. 
And then a fifth thing, let me point this one out. Neither masculinity nor femininity is exclusively tied to maleness or femaleness. So I'm forcing us to think a little bit more carefully now, okay, about this. The Bible does not suggest that only men can ever embody a masculine trait and only women can ever embody a feminine trait. Let's look at 1 Thessalonians 2.7. This is a good example of this. Paul says, But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. He's talking about himself and his team. We were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being, aff- so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. You see that? Here's a team of males who he's saying and he's implying there's kind of a feminine way to act, but you know what? Sometimes men have to act that way. You realize that? Paul shows his people that there are times when it is appropriate for men to act like women and vice versa. And we know this to be true from experience, don't we? Um, And I appreciate this take. I really do. Because so often we try to draw very stark, concrete lines between manhood and womanhood, but it doesn't actually hold up in our experience, does it? Men should be courageous, we say. That's an example. Well, shouldn't women also be courageous? I mean, is it possible for a woman to be courageous? Um, Men should be tough. You know what? I have three kids. I've witnessed childbirth three times. And you know what? I didn't do anything in there. I know uh, that was tough. Men should shoot guns. Well, you know what? I can think of some women who shoot guns, too actually. Are they sinning? Are they not acting like women? I don't, I don't know. What would we say about that? Plenty of women can shoot guns. Men should love. Well, shouldn't women love too? Right? So my concern for the church has to do with this. If we oversimplify masculinity and femininity and draw distinctions that are too black and white, then what happens when our experience doesn't align with our biblical categories? Right? Doesn't it minimize the Bible to some extent? Doesn't it kind of disillusion us to think, really, what is the way we should think about masculinity and femininity? And in some ways, I think about this because, well, this is fresh on my mind as I was preparing for our last podcast on the sufficiency of Scripture. When we talk about the sufficiency of Scripture, it means that God has spoken in such a way And it is sufficient for our life of faith to follow God and obey God perfectly, you see? So therefore, we shouldn't add anything to Scripture. We shouldn't subtract anything from Scripture because Scripture is sufficient. It doesn't need anything more and it doesn't need anything less. So we have to be careful as a church when we talk about manhood and womanhood that we don't add cultural preferences to what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. Or we shouldn't subtract those things away from what the Bible says. Does that make sense? Because as a result, we might grow disillusioned with, what does the Bible really say about this anyway? Is it a trustworthy guide? And one of the things that we learn about the sufficiency of Scripture is that 
When we add man-made laws, the Holy Spirit does not empower obedience to man-made laws. Therefore, if we were to say, you must be, if you are a man, you have to shoot something and eat it. That's what it means. Well, the Holy Spirit will not empower obedience to that, and therefore, you will, as a man, not find joy and delight in serving that end and being obedient to that description of masculinity. So we have to be careful. We really do. And I would, so I think we would do better to say with Jonathan Parnell, you know, this book called uh, Design for Joy. Is that what it is? Um, I think it's Design for Joy. And his chapter, actually, Jonathan Parnell's chapter on manhood, I think is the best thing I've read on manhood. He said this, neither masculinity nor femininity is exclusively tied to maleness or femaleness. Though masculine traits are most generally and appropriately associated with men and feminine with women. Men and women should both love. And the question of masculinity gets at precisely how that looks distinctive to gender. I think this is really helpful. I think it's much more in line with the way we live our lives and the way we understand ourselves. In other words, the call to love is universal, but the expression of that love will more appropriately take on either masculine or feminine expressions. Okay? I think that's what he's saying. Okay, so another thing, by way of introduction, a sixth point that I can point out. This sermon isn't just for men. Men have the call in their lives to respond to manhood, And we can suggest that women have the call to nurture godly manhood when they see it. So this is beneficial to both men and women because men have the call to respond to biblical masculinity and women should understand what that is so that they can nurture it in various ways in their relationships, in their marriages, in church. They can nurture that masculinity um, in various ways. So without further ado, let's get into kind of the meat and the potatoes. What is man's distinguishing or manhood's distinguishing feature? If we can say something concrete about manhood, what can we say? And I would suggest this, that really at the core, at the essence of biblical manhood and masculinity, I would suggest that it's self-sacrificial leadership. And again, this isn't to say that women shouldn't be self-sacrificing and that they shouldn't play a leadership role. But in the event that there is a male and female present or if there's an opportunity, you see, for there to be sacrificial leadership to be had, the man should take it. Does that make sense to you all? The man should take that opportunity to self-sacrifice and lead in that way. And this seems actually, that's it? That's all the difference is? Well, there's other ways in which men generally are called to strength and power and maybe maybe toughness, right? And and womanhood is more tender and nurturing and gentle. And there can be overlap in those things. But really, when we boil it down, I'm going to suggest that biblical manhood at the bullseye of it is about self-sacrificial leadership. To be a man is to be a leader and to be a sacrificial type of leader. And here's a definition again from Jonathan Parnell. 
True manhood is man's response to God's calling for men to gladly assume sacrificial responsibility. Let me unpack that. I'm going to say three things about that definition real quick. First of all, manhood is a response. God is calling you to manhood, and you can either respond to it in faith, or you can rebel against it in unbelief. Those are the choices. Your sex and your gender are not decided by you, but they are designed by God. We are not free, whether you're male or female, to decide your gender, but you have to um, you have to respond to it because it's designed by God. And therefore, manhood isn't necessarily a lifestyle option. It is something that is built into your very being by your creator. Discovering your manhood and giving expression to it is worship, you see? When you come to understand what God intends for you as a man, and you walk in that, that is your practical way. It was one practical way of worshiping God. It affirms the goodness of God and the wisdom of his design when you function as a man as God wants you to be. And for females, for you as a female, it functions as your God-given designed role. Um, and this brings glory to God and it affirms the goodness of him and his wisdom and his design. A second thing that we can say is that manhood should be accepted gladly. And even though the call to manhood can be a steep climb, God calls men to it with eternal joy, with our eternal joy in mind. You see, God has said there is great reward in living for him. There's great reward in discovering what he has designed for you. So men, your pursuit of manhood really is God's key way that he is making you more like Christ and calling you to know his joy. Manhood is about your pursuit of joy. And namely, the highest joy available to you is functioning in the design of God. There is no greater joy than to function in the design of God and how he has created you to function. And the third thing, perhaps, that we can say about this is that manhood is about taking sacrificial responsibility. And therefore, manhood is about loving leadership. And I want to draw a connection to this as we talk a little bit more about this between sacrificial responsibility and loving leadership. It's essentially the same idea. In Genesis 2.15, God goes to Adam and he actually entrusts him with the responsibility of giving names to all of the animals. And when we name something, when somebody is given the right to name something, it usually means they have leadership and authority over that person or thing. When Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, it was Adam, right, that God came to and held him responsible because God thought of Adam as the leader in that situation. He should have, in this case, laid his life down for Eve, laid his life down before she was allowed to eat the fruit, even if it meant having to intercede between her and this devil. Um, so there we have three things. Manhood is a response. It's accepted gladly because God has joy in it for us. And it's also about taking sacrificial responsibility. And I want to flesh that third one out a little bit more. Let me talk about how this looks. Um, 
what does manhood actually do? And if we think about leadership, let's focus in on this sacrificial leadership a little bit more, shall we? I'm going to suggest, I'm going to talk about three aspects or three spheres that we can lead. Leading yourself, leading in your homes, and then leading in church. And we could talk about more. We could talk about leading at your job and your career, leading in your neighborhoods. But we're going to talk about these three. So sacrificial leadership, how does this look? Well, leading yourself. Men learn to sacrifice their own desires for food, for sex, for free time, for leisure, their income, maybe their discretionary spending. I'm not saying that men never get anything that they want, but what I am saying is that they are not controlled by what they want. And perhaps another thing that we could say about learning to lead yourself is to examine yourself, right? Are you emotionally aware of your heart and your mind before God? Do you understand how you work? Do you understand how your heart and mind function together? Do you you identify sin and confess it? Do you take ownership over your sin? Do you understand, like David says in Psalm 51, I'm a wretched man. He takes ownership over his sin and he repents to God and he confesses it. And he's open to having people speak into his life so that he can identify sin and deal with it and fight against it. This is leadership of yourself. This is taking responsibility, right? And we could probably say, if you can't lead yourself, you're probably not going to be able to lead anybody else. A second thing men lead over and call to lead over, they're sacrificial leaders of their homes. Let me talk about your marriages. Men are leaders of their wives. But you will notice that Ephesians 5.25 says husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. It doesn't say husbands lead your wives as Christ led the church. Do you notice that? It doesn't say that? I'm going to suggest that husbands lead their wives by loving their wives. And this is where the biblical idea of leadership and love come together. I hope you guys can see this a little bit more. Even in the In the 1 Corinthians passage where it says, act like men, let everything that you do be done in love. Leadership is loving. And this, I think, this comes to a head in Ephesians 5 where he says, husbands, love your wives, right? And husbands love their wives by, or lead their wives by loving their wives. So show me a husband who loves his wife who nourishes her and cherishes her and listens to her and attends to her needs and sacrifices for her. And I will show you a husband who is leading his wife. You know, I have yet to sit down with a couple and for a wife to tell me, you know, he sacrifices for me, he listens to me, he serves me, he loves me, he nourishes me, he cherishes me, but he just won't lead. I haven't heard that yet. I have not heard a wife complain about that. Show me a husband who's loving his wife, who's attending to her, who's nourishing her, who's cherishing her, who's listening to her, who's deferring to her, who's putting her needs above his needs, and I'll show you a husband who's leading his wife. And 
And I think marriages describe the nature of leadership. It is loving in nature. Men, you know, or I'm sorry, you show the world what is valuable, but what you love and what you cherish. Do you realize that? You show the world what is valuable by what you love and what you cherish. And that's true for everything. In some ways, you could say you are what you love. When you love your wife, you show the world how biblical femininity is beautiful and how the love of Christ for his people is sacred. You show that. You display that to the world. And we love what we value so that the world will value what we love. You see that? I think that's a pretty good line. I'm going to say it again. We love what we value so that the world will value what we love. And this is leadership. I think leadership is loving. Loving is really the pathway to leadership. And I think this biblical idea of what leadership really is from, from, uh, for, for manhood. Men are leaders over their children. The command throughout Scripture, when it comes to children, is consistently on fathers. Do you notice that? Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in this discipline and instruction of the Lord. Ephesians 6.4, we talked about that last week. In Deuteronomy 6, it says he's commanded fathers to teach these precepts of the Lord diligently to their children. The first nine chapters of the book of Proverbs, have you ever looked into that? It features a father and a son. And it says some 23 times, my son, give ear to my words. I will give you good things. Listen to me, my son. Take note of what I say. 23 times in these nine chapters, you see this dad engaging his child. Please listen to me. I have good things to give to you because his father loves his child and he serves his child. This paints a picture of a father who really is living for the good of his children, who loves his children, who delights in them and prioritizes them even over his own well-being. In the book of Job, we see Job interceding for each of his children by name. In Job chapter 1, when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. So there we see leadership over yourself, leadership in your home, and then we can, I mean, let, me, let me just say something about leadership in the church. Um, strong churches require strong leadership. Healthy churches are possible because godly men lead sacrificially. I believe that. And I am thankful for these three men that are coming forth to take on the mantle of leadership. And there is a sacrifice involved in that. There's a sacrifice of time. There's a sacrifice of convenience. And I praise you. I, I, I praise God for you. And that's required, I think, across the board in some measure. Godly leadership is required for strong churches, for thriving churches. You know, a church might actually be able to survive if there's a lack of godly men leading, but it won't be able to thrive. And it certainly probably won't be able to overcome any great obstacles. So I would recommend or I would suggest to you that godly men are really needed for healthy churches to really thrive. There's opportunity for men, right, in the, in the life of the church 
to model what godliness looks like for other people to see, for other people to witness, for younger men to witness. What does it look like to love your wife? What does it look like to serve your wife? What does it look like to raise children? We need examples of this. Men need examples of this, and you have an opportunity to serve others in doing so. So there's three things that we can say. Leadership in over yourself, leadership in your home, leadership in the church. So some concluding thoughts. The only perfect example, you know, if, if we really think about sacrificial leadership and if we hold the bar of manhood at that, all of us would s- gain a sense of failure. None of us can really attain to that perfectly because only one has, and his name is Jesus. He's the one who's the perfect, loving, sacrificial leader. Only in Jesus do we perfectly see the merging of manhood and love. Manhood plus love equals sacrificial leadership, perhaps. And Jesus gladly assumed the sacrificial leadership as well. In Hebrews, we read, Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, right, endured the cross, he despised the shame, and he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is the one who comes to us in all of our failures. I mean, if you really look at all of the heroes of the Bible, and I'm sure all of you guys are aware of this, but there's not one of them that is without a significant flaw, right? I mean, when you go through the the ranks, Adam failed to really lead his wife. I mean, we can go through. Samuel didn't really do well to raise his sons. David, he was a mess. He was a godly man, yes, and he was a great example and a hero of the faith, but he was a mess. He sinned against his wife. He followed his flesh. He did poorly in some ways to pass on his faith to one of his children at least. Solomon. I mean, in some ways, can we even look at the book of, of, of uh, Proverbs? <laughs> Solomon wrote it and basically didn't follow any of it. So the Bible is filled with all kinds of broken heroes. And if we really look at it, uh, every single man in this room will look in the mirror and realize I'm just the same. I might have some real positives, but I really have some broken, I have broken wings. And there's guilt and there's sin in that. But Christ is a savior. You see, Christ is the man of all mans and he comes to you men and he says, you're forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. In every way that you have fallen short, I've made a way. And Christ not only forgives us, the gospel is not only good, it, it, the, the gospel is good news, I should say. It's not just good advice, it is good news. It comes to us not just be a better man, it comes to us with the reality that you have a better man in Christ. And that the Holy Spirit is alive and at work in you, and he is applying and living out the life of Christ in you. And as you have faith in Christ and as you grow in in godliness, you are empowered by the Spirit and he is perfecting Christ in you. And that's a great and glorious hope of the gospel because the gospel doesn't just call us to run, it gives us legs as well so that we can actually accomplish it. And that's the great news of the Holy Spirit who comes and he lives out the life of Christ in us and through us and he offers us forgiveness for every way that we have failed. And when we think about our church, when we think about the community of believers and how desperately we need that, we all get a glimpse of Christ through the different brothers in the congregation, do we not? We don't get the full picture, 
but we get glimpses. In each one of you, there is a way that God is working. There is a way that God is, is, is bringing you to maturity, a way that you reveal Christ in perhaps a way I need to see. And we need to see lots of those glimpses so that we get pictures of Christ and we get pictures of what masculinity and true manhood really is all about. So we need lots of pictures of different godly men because Christ is bearing fruit in each of you, probably not the same way across the board, but in each one of you, there's certain buds coming off of that leaf and we can point to all of those and kind of put it together and say, ah, this is what Jesus is like. And that in itself, when we look to our hero, we all need heroes, right? When we look to Christ and when we see him, when we see Christ manifest in the beauty of that, it also does work to call us up. So I pray that every single one of us here has heard something that is convicting to us and perhaps exposing of various immaturities. There's certain things perhaps that God is pointing at and putting his finger on every single one of you, right? Different ways that he is exposing sin or maybe pointing out an immaturity that you know before God, I got to work on that. That's a failure. That's where I'm weak. But you know what? There's hope in the gospel. There's hope in the gospel. So may there be something that each one of you has heard from God on. And if not already, perhaps there's something that you can go home and consider and think about, and the Holy Spirit will convict you, this is where I want you to focus. This, this is what I want you to press on. Go to somebody else in your congregation. Talk to your wife, whatever it might be. Confess this. Talk to them and say, this is where God is really calling me to pick it up. And I need help. I've failed in this in the past. Maybe I've tried and I haven't seen success Maybe you've tried to do this on your own to no avail. Maybe you really do need the help of your brothers and sisters in Christ. So I just pray that something, God is picking on something, he's pointing out something, and I pray that you would take this conviction, go to Christ with him, and pray and pray and pray until this aspect of your manhood is transformed. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your goodness to us and thank you for your kindness to us thank you lord god that you speak into these matters and you, you've called us lord god to be men and i pray lord that you would give your church glory of christ fellowship a deeper more profound understanding of what that means and lord go before us with your holy spirit empower us convict us lord god and give us the hope that we can truly overcome and that we can grow up and into maturity by the power of the Holy Spirit, with the good news of the gospel. So we ask, Father, all of these things in the mighty and matchless name of Jesus. Amen.